the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's a delight to have Stephen Coonan in the house. Stephen Coonan is a theoretical physicist and director of the Center for Urban Science and Progress at New York University. He's the author of the provocative and highly readable book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. Stephen Coonan, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's great to be talking with you, James. Stephen Coonan, your background is stellar, if not remarkable, for a deeply informed perspective on the multifaceted challenge of climate. Provost at Caltech, Undersecretary of the Department of Energy in the Obama administration, Chief Scientist for BP, the oil and gas giant seeking a leadership role in reducing carbon emissions, NYU. Yet, according to a quick Google search, some people are saying you are a climate denier. What's going on? Well, you know, there is a, a narrative about climate and energy that is being promulgated by many people. Um, I myself uh, see the data and the technical facts as a touchstone, and they don't always agree with what many people believe, and, and so they uh, like to cast aspersions. But, you know, what I like to say is I'm not denying anything because everything I'm saying is right there in the official documents. So when people ask you, how concerned should I be about climate? I'm being told on the one hand, I shouldn't have kids. It's an existential immediate crisis. Others say it's all invented by scientists or politicians. How do you sort all this out? Well, you know, there is a reality there and humans are influencing the climate and in a warming way and the climate is changing. Uh, I think nobody would deny that. Uh, how serious an issue is this in the next few decades or even, let's say, most of a century out. Uh, I think the official documents say this is a, an issue, but it's certainly not an existential threat, and we have the tools in order to deal with it. So no hair on fire discussions, but no dismissal either as a hoax. So is it fair to say that you acknowledge the climate is an issue, so calling you a, quote, denier seems inapt, but you may differ with some of the conventional thinking in respect of what to do about it. Yes, I, I, yes, I do differ with the convention that uh, conventional discussion that we must immediately and massively reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In the summer of 2022, there's been record heat across the U.S. and Europe. There's been the invasion of Ukraine by Russia earlier in the year. The mix of oil, gas, coal, nuclear power, and renewables is being reconsidered. What should the U.S. do? What would you say to President Biden if he were to call you in one-on-one -on -one and say, Professor Kunin, what do we do? 
Well, I would say first, Mr. President, we need to cancel the climate crisis. Precipitous action in reducing emissions can be more damaging than anything you can imagine for climate change itself. Second, the United States is only 13% of total greenhouse gas emissions around the globe. The developing world's emissions are growing rapidly. They need energy. And so even if the U.S. emissions were to go to zero tomorrow, that would be wiped out by about a decade's worth of growth in emissions for the rest of the world. So, Mr. President, the best thing the United States could do is to develop technologies for energy production and energy use that are no more expensive than fossil fuel technologies and then make those available to the rest of the world. Well, let's, let's say the president had a few follow-ups. One might be that, Professor, I've been told by a lot of people that we simply have to get rid of fossil fuels as fast as possible, job one. Is that right? Well, what I would say, Mr. President, is you should ask them what they mean by we. Because, in fact, if you look at the developing world, their development, it's about 6 billion people of the 8 billion people on the planet, their development requires massive amounts of energy. We will see energy increase by about 50% in the next 30 years. And the most reliable and convenient way for them to get that energy is through fossil fuels. And so even while the developed world might forswear fossil fuels, and it will take us decades to uh, eliminate them from our economies, the rest of the world needs energy, and they have said they're going to get it from fossil fuels. So you make the point about the developing world and the risks they're posing today and the relative emissions. What about historically? They would tend to come back and say that Yes, that may be true, but it's incomplete because the history of the West has been one of emissions over time. Uh, in, indeed, but you know the now is now for them. Uh, and for example, the Indian Prime Minister Modi has said the path that the developed nations follow is being closed to the developing nations. And of course, they believe that that's massively unfair. Carbon colonialism, perhaps, is what you might call it. Uh, and so they're going to do what they need to do to get the energy, because that's a much more immediate, tangible, and soluble issue for them, rather than some vague threat of climate change several generations hence. And let's say the president were to ask you about U.S. policy. It's been a general approach in the U.S. to raise energy prices over time as one of the primary means of getting environmental improvement. And this is as opposed to a abundance agenda to lower energy costs. And this shows in the polls. Americans of higher income support making energy more expensive and less available, but they have access to it. And those of more modest means are questioning what's going on. Yes, and what I would say is Mr. Biden, other things being equal, Raising energy costs to uh, all Americans uh, will not get you reelected. Uh, and, you know, we have seen um, protests in Europe about rising energy costs. Uh, 
and that that's just not a very popular move. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Inflation Reduction Act, which is primarily about climate. What are your thoughts about that? It has a whole series of provisions on electrification, the grid, permitting. Yeah. Is it a good thing, a bad thing, a mixed bag? How do we judge that? I, I would say it's a mixed bag. I, it's got some amount of money in there for energy research, which is to develop, demonstrate uh, emissions like technologies. And uh, I believe that's a very good thing. I think it has tax credits, production tax credits and investment tax credits, particularly for wind and solar that are frankly a travesty. Um, they reduce the cost of wind and solar to essentially zero for the investors. Uh, it is basically a very large handout for people who want to develop wind and solar. Those are the cheapest ways of generating electricity right now, and there is no need to subsidize them on the scale that's being discussed. On the electrification of passenger cars and light trucks, or LDVs, as they're called, light-duty vehicles, um, I think that's going to happen eventually. Uh, I have two concerns, though. Uh, one is that the subsidies, as they're written into the Act, are pretty restrictive in terms of content of the materials that they should produce. Um, they should be produced domestically, content of the labor should be produced by uh, union labor uh, that are going to limit the applicability of those subsidies. Secondly, I have great concerns about the ability of the grid to uh, handle a growing number of electric vehicles. And that's going to take some fair bit of uh, managing, of bolstering of the distribution infrastructure in order to allow everybody to charge up uh, when they want to. One of the issues that's been front and center in the autumn of 2022 is the sabotage, apparently, of the Nord Stream pipeline. Yeah, and you know. What, yes, what does that tell us first about the United States? I mean, do we have a lot of vulnerable infrastructure in the grid or otherwise, or are we safe? And then secondly, your thoughts on what's happening in Europe, please. Yeah, we, we have a, a massively developed infrastructure for electricity, for natural gas, and for uh, the delivery of uh, oil, um, coal, um, oil, gasoline, and, and diesel. And, you know, like all of our infrastructure, it is vulnerable. Fortunately, it's pretty redundant. And so when there is a disruption, we tend to manage around it. A lot of people are worried about cyber threats to the grid. Uh, and it's something that the government and the utilities are taking very seriously and have been for the last many years. Um, I am, what's happening in Europe is just extraordinarily interesting. I mean, it's, it's sad, but it's interesting. I think the situation there has made people understand that there's kind of a Maslow's hierarchy for energy, just as there is for human needs more generally. Um, reliability is most important. Affordability is next important. And frankly, uh, a third, a distant third, is clean. Clean locally in terms of local pollution, and then clean in terms of CO2 emissions. And unless you've got reliable and affordable energy, which Europe is lacking now for various reasons, um, you're not going to be so concerned about green. 
And what about the future in Europe? How do you see it developing after this war? The countries are having to make changes in real time. They face in 2022 what could be something like the winter of discontent in Great Britain in 78. Yeah, it could be really bad. Uh, so I think you're going to see several things. Uh, and these are happening already. One is a realization that natural gas is very important. And not only is it important, but it's important to have it domestically. And so you, you're seeing now the UK uh, turn back to fracking. You're seeing, I think you'll see Poland uh, doing the same. Um, you're going to see the construction of liquid, liquefied natural gas import terminals in uh, Europe, as, as is happening already, the bolstering of gas supplies from Algeria as well. I think you're going to see a return to nuclear, uh, both in the UK and in Germany. Uh, these are two steps for electrification, electricity more generally, that, uh, you know, for those of us who've been watching are eminently sensible uh, and have known that for, for a decade or more. Uh, but Europe, a good part of it has gone off on this green fantasy uh, that has really destroyed its energy reliability and um, affordability. So one of the objections raised in all these cases, fracking, nuclear, LNG, there's always the question about the permitting and the regulation, yes. which seems backwards in a way that ought to be something that ought to make it work. But how do we work through this? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we have to come to the realization, uh, as one of my senior colleagues once told me, the only people who don't pollute are dead people. And even that's not obvious. And so everything has an environmental impact, whether it's the carbon dioxide and particulates from fossil fuels, or it's the spent nuclear fuel, or it is the mining activities that need to go on in order to produce those very special materials for renewable technologies. And so pick your poison, all right? And, you know, many of those pollutants are much more certain and more potent and more soluble than the CO2 problems. Well, you've been a DOE. You've seen a lot of these issues firsthand. How do we improve regulation? Well, I think it is, you know, it, it's not just about the technology or economics. I think it is an informed, uh, realistic cost-benefit analysis that needs to be done and the way the political system has been moving in the last 10 or so years, uh, there are some absolutes and absolutes are just not uh, acceptable when you try to do regulation. It's always a balance and it needs to be a quantitatively informed balance. You've become an object of some controversy and how do you evaluate the polarization going on? I think that there are a number of people who honestly believe, for whatever reason, that the fate of the earth is uh, in balance here. Uh, in fact, there was a book, right, Earth in Balance, um, that, that the fate of the earth is at risk here if we don't stop emitting fossil fuels. I think that has extraordinarily thin scientific support, if it's there at all. Uh, there are other people who want to ignore environmental issues entirely. And 
again, I think it's a matter of education about what the science is, what the technical possibilities are, and also what the history is. One of the things I like to point out is that the Earth has warmed by about 1.1 degrees since 1900. Humans have played some role in that, exactly how much we don't know. But during that time, humanity has prospered on a scale never before seen. The population grew by a factor of five since 1900. We've seen tremendous improvements in longevity. The average person lived only for 32 years in 1900. Today, it's 72 years. Nutrition, uh, childbirth mortality, you can go on and on of how much better the human condition is today than it was 120 years ago. And to believe that the warming of another one or one and a half degrees is going to significantly derail that progress over the next hundred years are just beggars belief. One of the issues of COVID and certainly climate is that there's a lack of authority. People don't agree on the facts. They don't know who to believe. What do we do about this? Boy, um, I think we need, with respect to the climate science discussion, I think we need a much more open and balanced debate, actually, that lays out the picture more clearly. Uh, as I tried to do in, in my book, Unsettled, I just tried to expose what's in the official reports, not as they get filtered by the summaries or the media or the politicians. And when you look at that unfiltered discussion, you realize that there's a lot of nuance here that is very far from an absolute statement that we've got to reduce greenhouse gas emissions immediately. So what is a wise decision-making process, given that reality? I would like to see, that, so this is another thing I would perhaps tell the president. Mr. President, we need to get together a plan for graceful reduction in emissions. That plan has to involve the certainties and uncertainties in the climate science. It has to involve the technical and economic aspects of energy technologies. What can we develop in what amount of time and how much will those technologies cost? It needs to include regulation. It needs to include the business cases and it needs to include people's perception and behavior. Mr. President, no one has done that sort of plan before, even at the state level. And what I would advise and what I think the country needs to do is to pull together that kind of group of people and ask what is the least disruptive way, disruptive both in terms of our systems, our economics, our jobs, uh, that we can achieve a significant reduction in emissions on a reasonable time scale, let's say by the end of the century. Well, let's turn to the international side. As you know, on environment, the U.S. has long been a leader, yet uh, there are other nations now rising to key economic and statecraft roles. How do we think about that? Well, I, again, you know, there are six billion people on the planet who need energy in order to improve their lot. And I think whatever sway the U.S. might have had uh, is trumped by that existential 
demand. Let me remind you that there are 2 billion people, no, 3 billion people in the world who use less electricity every year than the average U.S. refrigerator. And the average citizen in the U.S. uses about 30 times as much energy every year as the average person in Nigeria. And so until we bring those folks in the developed world up to some reasonable standard of living, and actually the way I said it is, is more than a bit condescending, uh, until we let them come up to the standard of living that they need by accessing that energy, I don't think we have much moral case as we talk to the rest of the world. So, Stephen Coonan, if listeners want your thoughts in addition to your book and they want to take action, where would you recommend they start in terms of reading, resources, gathering information? Yeah. So, um, you know, I teach uh, at NYU these days uh, climate science in the fall and energy in the spring, uh, both to master's level engineers and business people. And in both of those courses, almost all the students come out with their eyes opened up and their minds opened up. And the way I do that is by trying to access the documents behind the media and the political discussion, going through to the National Academy's reports, to the primary climate data, to the technical assessments and so on. So I would urge people, first of all, be curious and dig a little deeper. For example, we had some horrific floods in Pakistan this summer, and you have the Pakistani environmental minister saying, these are the worst floods since 1961. Well, as a scientist, I hear that and say, okay, that sounds pretty bad, but if it happened in 1961, what am I supposed to think about that? Because human influences on the climate were a lot smaller then. Similarly, the Hurricane Ian, which we've had in the last uh, couple days, uh, is only the fifth most intense hurricane that's hit Florida. And the most intense one was in 1930-something, right? 1936, when human influences were essentially negligible. So we cannot... And we have to get away from blaming every extreme weather event on uh, greenhouse gas emissions. It's just not true. If someone were to ask you, who is your most credible opponent or who disagrees with you that others should also consider? Um, I would look to, um, boy, there are people who, who speak out. Uh, that's hard. Let me think for a minute, all right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not so easy. Um, to, to, I, I have a lot of respect for Dan Schrag at uh, Harvard. In fact, I'll debate him in, in a couple weeks. Um, I think Rob Sokolow at Princeton uh, is a very thoughtful and informed guy. Both of these people, by the way, are friends, and so we agree to, to disagree. Um, I would also urge people, well, I, let me leave it at that. All right. And would you classify yourself as optimistic? Oh, of course I'm optimistic. I, I think if you look, we will solve 
this problem. We may not solve it by massive reductions in greenhouse gases. I think we'll actually solve it by adaptation. Uh, we're very good at that. And I have every confidence that our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be at least as nimble and capable of adapting as previous generations have been. Well, let's do a lightning round on some personal thoughts of yours. Your career path is varied. You've had many accomplishments. A common thread is that you're an educator. Who are your models in this respect and how does that influence your thinking? With the understanding that those skills and that vantage point has uses for people in many other fields. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think my earliest and, and maybe primordial model is my father. Uh, he he's unfortunately now passed away for 50 years or so, but he was um, very patient in explaining things to me. He was not at all uh, a very educated man, but he instilled in me uh, um, a taste for answers, for curiosity about the world, and a way of explaining it simply. Later in my life, um, I got exposed to some wonderful teachers at Caltech, uh, Dick Feynman, I've always admired. Hans Bethe was an amazing physicist, both in his uh, research accomplishments, but also in his ability to distill the essence of things. Uh, a few other names that are, you know, again, uh, heroes of mine, Dick Garwin, um, Sid Drell, and in, specifically in the energy field, Vakov Smil who's still with us and writes wonderful books uh, factually about how things work, particularly energy and, and the environment. And Bill Gates has popularized his work. Bill, Bill Gates, yes. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I discovered Smil before Gates did. Uh, I think we both have a lot of admiration for him. Uh, many people wrote endorsements of my book but one of the ones I'm very proud of is that Smil wrote a very nice few sentences about the book. You mentioned Richard Feynman, who is a familiar name to many people. What makes him so special? I, I think it's, it's two things. He had, on the, the technical side, he had an uncanny ability to get to the essence of complicated physical situations and think through them to the point where you could build very simple models and so get tremendous insight. The second thing was he was unstintingly honest in his approach to science. Uh, the data are what they are. The, your theory either explains the data or it doesn't and it hence is invalid. And he was never afraid to speak forthrightly about technical issues. And you saw that uh, most famously in the Challenger uh, Commission, where he uh, you know, said and demonstrated wonderfully uh, it was the O-rings. Your career has a clear logic to it, looking back on your many accomplishments. Yet one also suspects that you were taking some risks in various ways by some of your moves. and which raises the question, are there issues where you have changed your mind on significant matters over the years? Boy, um, you know, with respect to energy, 
uh, I was quite skeptical that we would see widespread electrification of light-duty vehicles, and I think that that's now uh, come to pass. Uh, I was um, somewhat surprised to see solar come down as uh, rapidly in cost as it has. That still, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the savior of the energy system. But those are things on which I've uh, changed my mind. Um, on more broader technical issues, I don't think so. I, I've tried not to get locked in too much to positions, uh, always willing to allow that, you know, I, I think I'm right, but uh, I'm not so sure that I am. Um, and so uh, outside of um, the, those energy issues I've talked about, I don't think there's anything I've been really locked in hard on. Uh, where I've had to change my mind. You're being such a fine educator. Let me ask a more general question. What have you learned, say, in the past five years that has changed your life or your perspective or your work for the better? Um, I, if you'll let me go back maybe 10 years, um, mm -hmm. I, I got exposed. Uh, I went from academia uh, at Caltech as a professor and provost for 20, um, almost 30 years. Uh, and then I went into the private sector and I had no idea how the private sector really worked. And I had the opportunity to see it from the inside, uh, near the top of a very large multinational corporation. And I think I learned two things. One is the extraordinary challenges it is to manage a, a global energy business where you have so many factors, technology, geopolitics, um, economics, stakeholders, and so on. And secondly, I learned how important the private sector is in delivering not only energy, but in making um, most of society run very well. You know, people are not in the in the private sector, in the corporations, or even the small businesses. They're not troglodytes. They they want to see society do well. They're providing an important service to society. Are willing to listen and respect regulation, but operate under extraordinarily constrained uh, circumstances sometimes in in the energy business. And and so I I think what I learned was a much greater appreciation for the private sector than I had had before. And a lot of people think that we live in a hinge moment, that energy and environment are central to a bigger set of changes that are coming in the whole, the whole set of world systems on finance, statecraft, and so on. What do you think? Yeah, I, uh, we are. Um, I, I think, you know, at one level, demographics is destiny. Uh, the developed world, the U.S. is only 4.5% of the global population. If you add Europe in, we're about a billion and a half out of 8 billion, um, and so less than 20%. The rest of the world is growing up, and there are a lot of folks there, and they're growing up real fast, not only in terms of economic activity, but in cultural heft. Uh, the communications, the transportation we have, have made this a much different world than, let's say, the 20th century was. And 
for those of us in the developed world in the U.S., I think coming to grips with that uh, is something that's driving a lot of the issues we're dealing with now. Well, Stephen Coonan, as we close, are there any topics we've not discussed that you'd like to leave us with? Oh, I, I think, you know, this last topic of what is sustainability, not sustainability with the big S in terms of the environment, but sustainability in terms of the little s, which is how do we keep uh, our U.S. standard of living and sway in the world? That is the dominant question of our age. And I'm disappointed to see that the political system is not really grappling with that. Any thoughts on how it could? Um, you know, perhaps unreasonably, I turn to congressional commissions. I think they have a role in defining and in highlighting uh, important national problems. Uh, I'd like to see the politicians talking about that rather than the things they are talking about, which perhaps while important, are not of great consequence uh, as much as this uh, sustainability issue is. And if you were to tell your students how they should think about this and plan their careers, what would you say? I, I think, first of all, have a global perspective. Uh, many of my students are international, and so to have that to some extent, the U.S.-born ones tend not to. And so learn about the world, uh, cultures, economy, uh, geography, uh, what's going on politically. I think that's one. Secondly is have a firm base of talents, whether it's in economics or in business or in technology, that you can use as a platform to understand the world. And then finally, uh, get involved in something that is going to make a difference. Stephen Coonan, thank you. It's been a delight. And thank you for your tremendous service to the Happy USA to and indeed the whole world on climate. Happy to chat with you, James. Thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter or at our website or on Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.